one of the really great exchanges that occurs after our Lord's resurrection is between he and a disciple named Thomas. Thomas, of course, has over the centuries gained the unfortunate designation as Doubting Thomas, you know. And um, I want to take a look at him and how he's portrayed in the scriptures and, and wrestle with this really unique moment where his faith is enlarged in relation to Jesus. And so we're going to start by just looking at uh, where we, sort of where we left off last week, John 20, verses 19 and 20. And again, we talked about how the disciples were hiding in fear from the leaders when the Lord suddenly appeared to them. And so we read here in John 20, 19 and 20, again, just reconnecting with what we shared last week and setting the stage for what we're about to share now. It says, the Sunday evening, the disciples, that's, that would have been Easter Sunday evening. The disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, the Jerusalem leaders, uh, who it, it, we know uh, had, along with the, the Pilate, the Roman governor, and the Romans, that they had pushed for Jesus' death. And um, the leadership of Jerusalem, along with the Romans, had, had just done a devastating thing. I mean, when the Romans were done with Jesus, we talked about this, uh, he, he was hardly recognizable. Uh, they had, and his, the, the people who loved him had witnessed it all. It had been horrifying. It had been devastating. It had been astonishingly bad to witness. I mean, the, the violence of it. The, the things that Jesus was forced to endure, not to mention the shame, uh, to be stripped down, um, to be hung up there between two thieves. This man who had spoken the beautiful words, the one in whom there had never been violence nor guile or deceit. Jesus, the, the teacher, who had changed lives. And to watch him come to such a cruel ending, it had been just horrifying but, you know, the disciples were told here were hiding out because they were a little concerned that they were next. And it says that in the midst of their fearful hiding place that suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. And he said, what would it be a common greeting? Peace be with you. Let the wholeness of God be yours in peace. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. And they were all, you know, a great phrase here, they were all filled with joy when they saw the Lord. When they saw the Lord. They were filled with joy. It's always when we really see him that joy comes. And then they were glad when they saw the Lord. There's something about this moment, though, that reminds us of a couple of things. One, there was a good thing, and one less good. Uh, the good thing was that the disciples, to, to their credit, they had found one another. They had chosen to come together instead of just, you know, they had all scattered, but they re-engaged re one another as community. Very important. That was a good thing. Unfortunately, the other part of this was, though, that they were hiding out. Their doors were locked. The windows were closed. They were really a picture of, of people just totally afraid and locked down, shut down. And we talked about how fear has a way of closing us in, how when we're really afraid of things, all of a sudden we lock ourselves in and we lock other people out. In this case, Jesus appears on that Sunday afternoon, and when he came we may assume that there were more than just the disciples that were there. We know that there were many of the women that had also been his disciples that were gathered there as well, and a few others. I mean, the, the women, I think we all understand this, had been some of the most loyal of Jesus' followers. And I, I put them in a group because the, the, they were the ones who actually had not run away. They were there to witness it all. And if you recall, many of the, it was the women who made their way to the tomb, not looking for a living Jesus, to be honest. They came that Sunday morning after the crucifixion looking for a Jesus whom they loved and wanted to honor in a special way. 
They, they had no sense that he was alive, but they loved him still. Yes, it's true. He has said things. Obviously, some of those things weren't true. He wasn't the son of God. He wasn't Messiah, but he had been good, and they wanted to honor him and care for him as a teacher of God. That's what they believed. That was the limit of what they thought Jesus was. In the, into that place, though, we would have seen them gathered in that room with the disciples. Now, if we had been there and we were looking around the room and we were looking at the different disciples, remember there were 12 original disciples, but only 10 of them were there. One of them, Judas, in the pit of his despair and just overcome by an overwhelming sense of, I think, spiritual darkness, had committed suicide and taken his own life. He hung himself in his shame and guilt. The other, though, is a bit of a surprise because if we were to see, if we, if we were, again, looking around that room, we would have noted the, that there was another disciple who wasn't there. And it was one that everybody would have assumed should have been there, and that was Thomas. Where was he? We don't know. But for some reason, he wasn't with everybody else when they had gathered together. And so that kind of sets the table up. You know, again, I mentioned that Thomas is often called Doubting Thomas. I was talking to someone after service last evening, and they, they were just saying, you know, I've always wondered where the phrase Doubting Thomas came from. You know, they were fairly new, and just, they're just starting to explore their faith in the Lord. And I said, yeah, it comes right from here. I mean, this is the guy, Doubting Thomas, right? And I said, but, you know, really, it's kind of an unfair designation that he's gotten over the years because, I mean, you know, think about it. Throughout time, he's kind of known as the Doubting Guy, and yet, he was a lot more than that. I mean, when he first started following Jesus, he was clearly uh, you know, someone who followed him because he was willing to sacrifice things, he, his, his career. He, he followed Jesus intensely. He was a man of conviction. In fact, the scriptures really do give us snapshots of Thomas. There's a, you know, besides John 20, which is the quintessential passage with Thomas, there are a couple other places where he really stands out and, and you see who he is. And he's very relatable as a person. He's a person who is, I think, um, a lot like a lot of us in the sense that he, he really wasn't so much of a doubter as he was a realist. I mean, Thomas was a realist, and he, he kind of, yeah, he did have a bit of a negative bent to him, but he, he tended to speak his mind. In fact, there's this one really interesting occasion that stands out. It's, it's found in John 11, and it's a, it actually happens a little over a week before the moment of, of the crucifixion and all that, when all that, you know, meltdown occurs, but about a, a week or so, you know, seven to ten days earlier, Jesus had been on the other side of Jordan, which was a way of saying that he hadn't come to Judea. Judea, the center of Judea, was Jerusalem, and he had been, he had gotten news about a friend of his named Lazarus who was dying. We spent time talking about Lazarus and how Jesus worked the ultimate miracle there, and in a foreshadow of what was going to be with his own body, re Lazarus was resurrected. And we, we spent time talking about that. But there was an interesting piece that is thrown in as a, as a bit of a tangent that reveals something about who Thomas is. And so look with me, if you can, John 11, verses 7 and 8. Again, these, this has happened earlier than what we're about to look at with the, the moment of Jesus' appearing to the disciples. But earlier on, it, it, Jesus said this in John 11. He said, finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. In other words, let's head back to Jerusalem. And again, in Jerusalem, in Judea, was where this, everything was going to happen um, about a week later. But his disciples objected. They said, Rabbi, and they, look at this. It says, teacher, now, okay, listen, the, notice the word there? They objected. Let that be emphatic and clear. That is, you don't see this a lot. 
You we don't see this a lot in the Gospels when we don't see it a lot that the disciples actually said, Lord, I really don't think that's a good idea. We're not really that comfortable going back there. And then look at what they said here. It says they objected. No, 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 no. Rabbi, they, listen, it was only a few days ago when the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Why? It makes no sense to go back there right now. That would not be wise. They tried to kill you. Look at that. Now, what ends up happening is Jesus, if you read through John 11, he starts talking with them, and he basically says, look, we're going back because I have something to do. Not only do I have something to do um, in Judea, but I actually have something to do with Lazarus, and it's going it's to give you a whole different paradigm. It's going it's to affect you because God is about to do something remarkable in this man's life through me. And then we're told that Thomas speaks up. And this is a kind of, you get a little, again, view into who he is as a person. And it says that Thomas, who his real nickname, we're told here, was nicknamed the twin, Didymus. So actually, Thomas had a nickname. It wasn't Doubting Thomas. It was Didymus that meant the twin. So he must have had a twin brother. We don't know who he is. We didn't know anything about him. But we know that the disciples often called him the twin. All right? And they said to his fellow, so Thomas is listening to what's going on, and he's watching what's happening, and he, he can tell that Jesus is determined to go to Judea even though nobody wants to go. Everybody's saying, Lord, if we go back there, it, it's going to be really bad. They already tried to kill you. It makes no sense to go right now. Let's, th let's things settle down a little bit, and then maybe, but we don't think it's a good idea. Jesus says, we're going. And then you know what happens? Thomas turns around, and he basically says, well, that settles it then. Let's just go with him and die as well. Might as well. And you get the impression it's a realistic but also tinged with sarcasm in there. And he's like, he said, well, we might as well go die with him. And, and, and the point being, look, we listen to that and we go, well, well, well listen, he, he, yes, it was not optimistic. Yes, we, can, we will agree it wasn't faith-filled. But one thing it was, it was loyal to the bone. He was basically saying is, Jesus is going. He's going to do it. This, doesn't, this, is, this makes no sense to me. We're all going to die. Might as well go die with him. Think about it. It was negative, but it was loyal. All right? It was, it, in his own way, it was courageous. And you know what else? He was actually prescient. He, he was right in a way, as they all were. Jesus was going to die. He says, we're going to, but where he was wrong was, they didn't all go down with him. Because remember what happens in that moment when everything starts hitting, they have a chance to think about it. And they all abandon Jesus. I keep going back to Jesus and I keep thinking, Lord, what a model you are. What you represent to all of us is what it means to endure even when we are forsaken at the most painful levels. I, I, I continue to find myself gaining courage from the example of the Lord who was willing to face things even when no one would walk with him. And in this case, all the disciples forsook him. We know that. And on the other side of that disaster, the disciples had chosen, obviously, to regroup. And on that Sunday afternoon, Thomas, for whatever the reason, wasn't with them. So when Jesus appears in the room in his post-resurrection state, just appears suddenly, Thomas isn't there. And you look at his reaction because it's consistent with who we have seen him to be. Look at it. It's perfect in his own unique way. Look what Thomas says. Thomas, 
it says in verse, in verse 24 of chapter 20 on that second column there in the, in the hand, on the handout. Now, Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, the other disciples, they, they said to him, Thomas, and I'll say, Thomas, you're not going to believe it. You're not going to believe it. Guess, it's a, it's, he's alive. We've seen him, right? We've, t- we've seen him. He was here. You missed it. You missed it. But he's alive, all right? You know what Thomas does? Thomas says this. He says, uh, he, look, he says, unless I see, you know what? Okay, it's basically like this. They say, we've seen the Lord. He says, uh-huh. Well, I'm sure you have. I'm sure you believe you saw the Lord in your mind. I believe that you believe that you saw him. But basically he says, I do not believe. And in many ways, he's, he's so honest and he's so real. Look, you guys think you saw him. I don't know what you saw. You may, you may have seen something. I can't explain it. Something that you wanted to see. But guess what? I will not be, believe. I, unless I can act. And look what he says. Unless I can take my, my, my finger. If I see his hands and I, and I see the print of nails and I can put my finger into the print of nails. Into that place where that nail was hammered through his hand. And I put my finger on it. And I can take my hand and put it on that side that that spear was thrust into. Unless I can touch it. I don't care about what you're saying. Whatever it is you think you saw, I do not be, I will not believe. It was emphatic. Because he was a realist, or as others have called him, an honest skeptic. And he wasn't going to say what he didn't believe. And in that evening of Jesus' arrest, oh, and there's this great moment earlier. Remember I mentioned to you, we get snapshots. Flashback from this moment to another moment that occurs right before Jesus, the night of Jesus' arrest. And in fact, I think a lot of us know that a majority of the, of the Gospels, that they talk about the life of Christ, but a majority of the discussion is focused on the last week of the life of Christ. And in John, there's this huge section in John's Gospel that is just devoted to the teachings of Jesus on that final night before his crucifixion the following day, the night of his arrest. And in this, in that room, remember that, that was the room where Jesus gets down and he, while they're all arguing about who's the greatest, and he washes their feet and he says, he that is greatest among you, let him be the servant of all. That's the same, in that same environment, there was all kinds of things that were going on. Jesus was talking about different things. Jesus was saying things that some ways didn't make sense to them, almost seemed somewhat cryptic, certainly mysterious. They were hard to understand. He's talking about where he's going and the Father's house, and my Father's house are many mansions, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and you know where I'm going. And, and all the disciples, are, you get the picture, they're kind of sitting there going, what is he talking about? But nobody says anything except Thomas. Thomas says what everybody else is thinking. You know what he says? I'll just put this up there because it's a great picture again of who he is. In John 14, 5, he says this, Lord, oh, Lord, Lord, basically, what are you talking about? We don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way that you keep talking about. What do you mean? What are you talking about? What are you getting at? It, no, it does not make sense to us what you're saying. And then Jesus, in response to that statement, that rhetorical question on the part of Thomas, Jesus then says what has become one of the great statements of Christ that we we often refer back to. Because in the sixth verse that follows, right on the heels of that question, we don't know. Jesus says this. You don't know the way? Here it is. I am the way. I am the truth. 
I am the life. And no one comes to the Father. No one comes to God except through me. Do you understand? Again, this statement is made because Thomas was willing to speak up and say what everybody else was thinking. We don't get what you're saying, Lord. And then Jesus says, well, let me make it very clear to you what I'm saying. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one can come to the Father God but through me. Do you understand? It was very clear. Again, we would have never had that gift if it wasn't for Thomas's willingness to be kind of a clear thinker who was also a kind of courageous pessimist, if I can put it that way. He just didn't like to pretend when he didn't really get it. You see that? It's a great quality in some ways. But now we see here, we come, okay, go back here for a moment. Go back to verse 26. Because now all of a sudden, after Thomas has made his great statement to the rest of his friends, and he's saying, look, you may have think you saw something. I will not believe. I'm not going to believe that stuff. I'm not going to, there's no way. I saw him die. I'm not believing. But it says this, eight days, after eight days, look at verse 26, his disciples were again inside. So everybody had reassembled. And this time, Thomas is with them. Now remember, what that means is, Thomas is with them, but in some ways he's apart. Because they all believe something. He doesn't believe. He's not convinced. They're convinced Jesus in some way is alive. He's saying, I don't believe it. But he's still with them. Look what happens. It says, on after that eighth day, as Thomas is there, Jesus came, the same way he came the time before. The doors were shut, and he stood in the midst, and he said, he said the greeting, peace to you. It was the common greeting. Jesus appears, speaks the peace, and then he scans the room, and his eyes fix on Thomas, and he says, Thomas. And then he said to Thomas, Thomas, I want you to, look at this, reach your finger here. I want you to touch this. And I want you to look at my hands, and I want you to reach your hand here on my side, and I, I want you to, I want you to touch me. Be not unbelieving, but believe. To which Thomas, in that moment, he's, he, he's overwhelmed because not only is, is he, he seeing Jesus alive, but Jesus was fully aware of what he had said. And he had gotten right to it. And so then the, Thomas does, he, he, he then says, he says, and I imagine, just getting him my, he says, my Lord and my God. It, it's one of the most extraordinary declarations. Think about it. From the mouth of the great doubter comes the perhaps, perhaps the greatest confession of Christ ever recorded in all the scripture. My Lord and my God. And Jesus does not say to him, look at this. He doesn't say, oh, hold on, Thomas. Going a little bit overboard there. He doesn't say, no, 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 no. He doesn't say, no, 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 no. You kind of got quite right on that one. You kind of went, went a little bit too far. He, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus receives that, and he says this. Listen, Thomas, you believe because you've seen. You've touched me. He says, but I tell you this. And then he gives us what is the last recorded beatitude, a word for us through the ages, like an arrow shot through time. He says, listen, you believe because you have seen, but blessed are those who believe and have not seen. May we be among the blessed. Now, I, I, I say this because I want us to think about something. Let me just kind of put this on the board as we just kind of summarize and close with some thoughts that are intersecting with this passage and this exchange. 
put some things out there just for us to consider, all right? Again, focusing on this post-teacher theme of fear. Okay, number one, this is it. Let us guard against the fear of believing what seems too good to be true. That was the title of the message as well. The, the, the fear of believing what seems too good to be true. Because here's what I'm saying. For Thomas, the idea that Jesus was as he said he would be on other times alive was just too good to be true. And it didn't matter what everybody was saying. He wasn't going to be a fool. Nobody was going to make, make, make him believe something that he didn't believe. He was, listen, afraid to believe. He, I will not believe. I will not. And in one sense, I have to admire him. Because a part of him that is just very real and honest and authentic. But there's another reminder there, a reminder that, that really is connected to the idea that relationship with Jesus ultimately is not about touch or the physical. Even if we may say it, it can't even be completely summarized by the, by the scientific or the intellectual. It may include some of those rational, rational components, but at the end of the day, it is a spiritual issue. And it requires faith, as Jesus said. In some ways, it's a matter of the heart. And as Pascal said, you know, the heart has its reasons that reason knows nothing of. There are some things that we can't actually adequately define in chemical. When we say we love someone, when our heart is opened, these are things that they go into a different arena. It, it, you know, it's like when Jesus was talking to this very intellectual man and skilled teacher named Nicodemus in John 3. He says to him, listen, for a moment, I'm going to ask you to set what you know aside and open up your heart to me in a different way. I'm going to ask you to consider the possibility that the way of the Spirit, which is like the way of the wind, cannot be contained in clear paradigms, but has to come as a result of faith and an openness of heart, that you must be born again and see something new in a different way. It was an invitation to embrace God through the avenue of faith. And, he, and again, Jesus uses the illustration of wind to connect to the idea of spirit. And he's, in a lot of ways, it's a reminder for us that, again, part of what I'm saying here is that you, some of us, I think, are holding back, hear me out, on our willingness to commit our lives fully to Christ because part of us doesn't want to be duped. Maybe like Thomas, we say, you know what? It, it, it might be true, and I, I love him and all that, but I don't know if I can really believe that. And, and I will say this to us. We are on the edge, but the Lord is saying to us, come in. Come in. Open up your heart to me. Open up your heart. Let faith have a place in your heart. Open up your heart. Come in. It's always, you know what Jesus said? It only takes faith, he said, the size of the grain of a mustard seed. You know what a mustard? They all knew what the, he meant immediately. We, he was saying, the mustard seed was such a little seed. It was tiny. What Jesus was saying is, it just takes a little bit in there, and then it can open up a kingdom in your heart. Powerful, powerful truth. But there's another principle here that is fantastic for us when we're walking through the fearful places in life, and it's this. Notice it, number two. It's this, that the value of fellowship and community in troubled times in our lives, in times of fear, Again, for whatever the reason, the first time through, Thomas isn't with, with them when Jesus appears, right? And, and, it was a, and as a result, he missed the blessing of Jesus' first appearing. Now, it must be admitted that in some ways, we got the blessing of Thomas, Thomas's problem. 
because Thomas's not being there is what ultimately results in, and his questions of Jesus is ultimately re results in this amazing exchange. And then Jesus's declaration after he says, my Lord and my God, of, G of Jesus saying, look, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who believe who have not seen. We would have never had that if Thomas had actually been there the first time, but he wasn't. But again, it reminds us of what happens a lot of times when we're in a crisis place in life. And listen, if we live long enough, Let's think of this. Our life is like a, a book. And there are chapters to our lives. And some chapters are really good chapters. And I don't know how long our book is on this side of eternity. But there are some chapters where, oh, it's so easy to just love God and trust him and believe. And there are other chapters where this is really hard. This is really, my, my heart is so numb. I'm having such a hard time believing. I'm having a hard time trusting. I don't really sense God's presence. You know, I'm, or we're afraid. Life seems like it's not being fair. God's not being, where are you, God? You're not showing up for me. This is happening. This is bad. This is not good. This is occurring in my life. Well, and so here's what happens. A lot of times when we're afraid or we're in doubt or we're troubled or anxious, you know what the tendency is to do? To pull away from God. I was talking to somebody last week, and they said, you know what? I woke up that morning, and I had said to myself, you know what, I, I just, I'm just kind of bummed out on life. I'm not going to go to church today. And then they said what happened was they just started thinking about it. They felt like, like they were being challenged. Something was challenging. Get, get up and go. So when I got to the Lord's house, when I came where everybody was, it was like the Lord was started speaking to me. And all of a sudden, it, I, I was... But it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't made the decision to get here. And here's the thing. The tendency on our part when we're, when we're either afraid or in a difficult place or in a crisis place or in a place of um, continued uh, sort of de depressed, uh, you know, depression is to want to just pull away from people, to shut ourselves down. I'm not, I, I'm going to run away. I'm not going to, but the, the principle is the exact opposite. That's the most important time to get back to connect in community. That's why we talk about the value of the hard work of connecting, the value of being involved in a small group, the value of establishing friendships that we can, we can talk about our, our fears and doubts and pray for one another and share and strengthen our faith with, when we're in these places where it's, it's not coming easy. Look, those are, the, those are the reasons why it's so important because there's a tendency to want to move into a place of aloneness and isolation when things are not going well for an extended period of time. And the, and the, thing, the principle is this. The exact opposite is what we need to do. The times when we feel the worst like, the least likely to want to connect is exactly the time when we need to force ourselves into a place to do it. That's where we need it. And by the way, for some of us, that will be the key to survival spiritually at certain junctures in our life. It will be the difference between a faith that endures and a faith that shipwrecks. It's the willingness to get ourselves back. Thomas didn't believe. He, his mindset was not with everybody else. But you know what? He got there. And because he got there, he was able to receive what the Lord had wanted to give him. But it wouldn't have happened if he hadn't gotten there, even in his questions and in his doubts. You see what I'm saying? 
And that, and that leads to this final piece, which is this. If you really get down to it, honest doubt, yes, it is better than no faith. No one's going to question that. But it's not as good as honest faith. And I'm going to contend for honest faith. And what is honest faith? Honest faith, which I am saying is different than blind faith. Honest faith is faith that acknowledges that things don't always go great and sometimes uh, things don't make sense to us in this moment. It doesn't mean they don't make sense at all or won't make sense down the road. But sometimes things just don't make sense to us. But a faith that is founded firmly, I'm going to call it, you know what I'm going to call it? A sturdy faith. A faith that holds up. It's not in denial. It's not pretending. It's just... It prevails, it holds, even when things don't make total sense. Again, I, I go back to Thomas. Yeah, okay, yes, Thomas was doubting. Yes, Thomas was struggling. But you know what? Thomas was there. He got there. He had enough in him, enough in his heart to be there. And because he was there, God answered him. I love the fact that Thomas is part of the story of Jesus' disciples because it's a reminder it's okay sometimes to doubt and question things. The Lord will work with us. Isn't that great? I still go back to the idea that he says to him, Thomas, because you've seen, you believe, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Let's keep that in mind. You know, we're going to close. When we close, we're going to close with, to me, what is just a, a great song that declares the magnificence of Jesus. It's like we were born to sing his songs, born to know him as our Lord and our God. So we're going to, after our time of giving, we're going to, we're going to close with this final song. It's going to be a great closure to what we share together. Let me go ahead and pray, though, and we'll ask God's blessing. We'll close out. Lord, I want to, I want to again thank you so much for the opportunity to engage your words because your words are alive and they are life-giving. And I know you know what we need. You know everything that's going on, Lord. And I just pray that you would cause us to be able to confess with Thomas that you are our Lord and our God and to be able to declare you as the magnificent one. And, Lord, there are some of us, you know, maybe we just needed to hear, remember, and for those times in our lives when fear is trying to take hold and doubt's trying to just bore into our soul, just let you help us to develop a sturdy faith that is capable of prevailing through all the ins and outs of life. A faith that just, just endures and grows and, and stays close to you, keeps always open the possibility of you to do amazing things in and through us and around us. So I just pray that our heart would be soft, help us to keep our key relationships, help us to get involved, help us to value community. I pray for your blessing. You are the magnificent one whom we love. I ask for your blessing over our time of giving this closing song, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.